continuing in the book of Acts this morning in Acts chapter 17. So if you have a Bible, please turn with me there or a phone. Open the app to there. And if you don't have a Bible, uh, we have some in the back right to the right of the sound booth. Uh, you can go back and grab it. If, it's, if you don't have one at all, please keep it. It is our gift to you. And again, we are in Acts 17. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 15. I'm going to read through a portion of that right now as we get started. Starting in verse 1. It says, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for Christ to suffer and rise from the dead. And saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authority, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. The Lord add a blessing to his word this morning. So that's where we're at today. We're going to be going a little bit further. But I want to take a look back, uh, stop where we picked up from Acts 15 after Paul and Barnabas split down in here. We see... Uh, then Paul embark on his second missionary journey. We just got done walking through three parts of that series um, of chapter 16 where we looked at the sovereign work of God and we saw after Timothy joins them and they go on that journey, they visit the churches they were at in the first missionary journey and we see the Spirit guiding and leading them westward up here all the way to Troas where Paul receives this vision of a man in Macedonia and, and they, they know our call is to go to Macedonia. So they go across, and what we looked at the past two weeks is their time spent in Philippi, where we see three incredible conversions of, of three very different people. You have Lydia, who was this businesswoman, a seller of fine linens, very um, high, I guess, on the totem pole, if you want to put it that way. Um, and then you have this slave girl, this pythoness who is just demonized. And we see her come to, to Christ, someone who has just been used her whole life for the gain of other people. So we have the successful and the unfortunate both coming to Jesus. And then we see after they get tossed in jail, the, the work of God in, in releasing them from their shackles, but they remain for the sake of the gospel. And we see this jailer come to faith. Because after, I mean, after they're beaten, they're singing praises in this prison. We just see God working and working throughout this whole missionary journey. And upon being released from prison, they make their way onto what, where, they, where we're at today. And they go from Philippi up here through these cities I don't feel like pronouncing again. And, and we pick it up in Thessalonica and Berea. So that's where we're going and let's take a closer look at those cities, change maps here a little bit. We have Thessalonica, and that is about uh, 100 miles from Philippi. It's the capital of Macedonia, and it's a very metropolitan area. A lot of people, it's on this trade route called the Ignatian Way, which runs all the way from the Adriatic Sea across to Asia. So there's a lot of people coming in through this city, doing some trading. So there's a lot of different people groups. Uh, it's got a, a decent population. Some say 100,000. There's other commentators say 200,000. It's no small town. 
And it's ruled by these, this, this unique ring of officials, I guess. They were called politarchs. It's a really weird phrase. And a lot of people thought Luke was maybe not the greatest historian in the world because he uses the word politarch when he writes about these authorities and acts. And they're like, that doesn't, that doesn't exist. That's not a word. But upon f- like further archaeological digs and stuff like that, they found within just this region here, officials called politarchs, therefore showing that Luke was actually a very good historian and he got his facts correct. So that's the general, that's the makeup of Thessalonica where Paul's first stop is, where we just read about uh, this, this mixed, very mixed people in this metropolitan area. After Thessalonica, we're going to take a journey and we're going to go to Berea. And Berea is approximately 50 to 60 miles from Thessalonica, you see it there on the map. And this is, this is the contrast, really, of Thessalonica, both in the character of the people and geographically. It's a small town. It's not along a heavy trade route. It's kind of just tucked away at the foothills of the Olympic Mountains. And even though it's a small town and they're off the beaten path, by no means, we'll, and we'll see this, are the people there just like hillbillies who don't know what they're doing. Uh, they're very intellectual people in this small town, and uh, we, we will see uh, a great example that they show us. So that's where we're looking at. Those are our, our two cities this morning. And as we look at the events that are to unfold, what I want us to see is three different parts, I guess, or aspects of the gospel. We wanna, I want to sh- show you from the text that the gospel is the focal point of all of the scriptures. It's the only thing that can turn this world upside down and we should have a hunger for it. That's what we see in this text. That's what I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to harp on that. that. That's what I want us to see. And we're going to see that through the three headings of the authority. This is the authority of the scriptures. The accusation of the Jewish leaders. And then the appetite of the Bereans. And let's just dive right on in with the authority. Picking it up. In verse 2, we saw that Paul was in the synagogue. And it says, And Paul went in as was his custom. And on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for Christ to suffer and rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. So we we know from this text that Paul was at Thessalonica for at least three weeks, because he spent three Sabbath days there. That's, that's a good amount of time preaching in the synagogue. He could have been there longer. We don't know. Um, just We know at least three of those Sabbath days he was, he was teaching. We know he set up shop there because in 1 Thessalonians 2.9 it says, For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We work day and night that we may not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed you the gospel of God. So they're there. They set up shop, uh, probably a tent shop as we see in, in other scriptures, Paul was a tent maker to earn his keep. Sets up shops so he has enough time to make some tents and make some of that money. So they were there uh, for, for three Sabbaths at least. And we see within that time, this time spent in the synagogues, Paul is doing four distinct things. And I was, as I was reading this, I was like, this text is awesome. Luke couldn't have left four easier talking points on my lap um, as far as reasoned and explaining, improving and proclaiming. Those are what we're going to look at as we look at the authority of Scripture. Uh, he laid it out for me. He gave me the outline. It's beautiful. So let's look at the first aspect, reasoned. Paul's in the synagogue. He's got the Scriptures open, and he's reasoning from them. And what, what this word reasoning means is a back-and-forth dialogue. He's reasoning. There's questions being asked, and he is answering those questions. And he's answering those questions not from like, well, I think this is the answer, or I really feel that this is the answer. No, he's reasoning from the Scriptures. He's opening up the Old Testament. That's what they had. That was their Scriptures. And he's reasoning with them from the Scriptures. Questions are being asked, and he's answering them with, well, here's what the Bible says. I think nowadays, 
a lot of people are going away from, well, here's what the Bible says to answer that question. And we have a lot of people going, well, I think and feel God is this way. So I'm going to answer your question with what I think about God. And so that's what God is. And that logic just doesn't hold up. Why don't we look at what God says about God? And that will give us our answers. We can find him in the the text. We know that this is the inspired word of God. And that is our authority. We need to go to the scriptures, be able to reason from the scriptures. It means we need to understand our Bibles and know our Bibles. Here at King's Chapel, and many of you know this, our focus is we want to know what the Bible says. We don't, we don't want to just get our own agendas across and then use the Bible to back it up. We go through books of the Bible, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, in order to see what God is saying through the authors of these books in their original context, not skipping over anything. We went through Genesis. We saw some crazy stuff happening. Uh, we didn't glaze over it. We want to know what the Bible says. And that's how we do it. That's how we should study our Bibles. What does what the Bible say about certain things? The next word is he was explaining. The word used here for explaining literally means to, to open up. To, to open and bring about something that was closed or not clear. And make it clear. So Paul is reasoning, he's answering their questions, and he's explaining. He's, he's taking the scriptures and saying, well, this is the scripture, I'm explaining it. And that can be way harder than some of us may think, or maybe some of you are like, no, I, don't, I know it's hard. That's really tough. I, I find myself in that boat a lot. Like, I know, I know it, but can I explain it? It's like when you get like one of those words, like where someone's like, well, what is... What does this word mean? You're like, I know what it means, but I cannot tell you what it means besides just using that same word. (laughs) Plethora. You guys ever see the three amigos? I will not get sidetracked. Okay. (laughs) We need to be able to to, uh, explain. I think of our, um, the Because You Asked series we did this past summer where you guys submitted questions to us online about things you wanted to know uh, about what the scripture says about a certain topic or a doctrinal belief. Really, the, it was a wide array of, of different topics. And wh- what we could have done, I guess, if, if we didn't care, we could have just said, oh, well, here's your questions. Um, this text answers that, so there you go. There's your, there's your verse. Take it. Read it. Go on your merry way. That, that answers it, if you're wondering. Uh, but instead, we devoted a sermon series to it because there are things that need to be explained. There are things that are just hard to understand, and you can sit and you can read a verse a million times, and some, sometimes we just we don't get it until someone's like, well, think of it like this, and it's explained, and the eyes are opened up. We need to be able to explain and try our best to learn to explain. And after he reasons and after he explains, Paul then proved, it says, in proving it was necessary for Christ to suffer and rise from the dead. So he's in the scriptures, he's reasoning from them, he's explaining. He's in nothing but Old Testament passages, because that's what they had. And it doesn't say, and then he made a decent case that Christ had to suffer and die. It said, he proved that Christ needed to suffer and rise from the dead. And he didn't do it using the gospel accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. He didn't do it using his own letters, because they weren't written yet, or some of them at least. He used it using the Old Testament scriptures and saying, look at these texts. Texts like Isaiah 56, Psalm 22. Look at these texts. They point to Jesus. And he proves that the gospel, that the, the, per, the person and the work of Jesus Christ is the focal point of all of Scripture. He, he's saying, look at this. Look at this text. Look who it's pointing at. Jesus Christ. From Genesis all the way to Revelation, it points to the work of God and the, and the person and the work of Jesus Christ 
on the cross. So he proves it. From where? The Scriptures. He proves it from the Word of God. He doesn't prove it through clever reasoning or, or anything like that. He proves it from the Bible. And upon reasoning and explaining and proving, we can see that with absolute authority, he can then proclaim, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. He goes through all these things and he, 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 he can now proclaim it. He, he can't say, in my assumption, therefore, is Jesus may be the Christ. No, he's proclaiming like Jesus is the Christ because of what God's word says. I see it perfectly fulfilled in the scriptures. He's not just expressing again what he believes in his feelings. He's expressing with absolute authority and assurance that Jesus is the Christ. He's just the mailman, as we know, giving the good news. And we see a response. Now, in this, in this Greco-Roman culture that they're in, even though he's in a synagogue, it's not just a Jewish audience he's speaking to. Within the synagogue, we have Gentile God-fearers who are in their own little section. They wanted to, they wanted to draw close and, and, and worship, but they weren't quite allowed because of the, the racial uh, barriers. So there's Gentile God-fearers in there. There's, there's a Jewish audience in there. And there's this culture that has developed in that, that region of this philosophical reasoning that has to happen. So Paul goes through that, as we just saw, he reasons, he explains, and therefore proves, you know, A plus B equals C. He gets through that, and we see, it says, and some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. So the gospel does not go out in vain. Some Jews and many Gentiles come to faith, among whom were, were leading women. We're, we're seeing in these passages that in this culture, women have high, high positions, a high standing. And it's significant that even these women, they are coming to faith in Christ. The gospel is reaching those in prominent positions. And what a, what a unique group to reach with, with all these Gentile God-fearers. There's a connection that can be made where they are... They have this connection with, with, the Jewish, uh, with the Jewish people because they're worshiping the same God. And then, but because they're Gentiles, they have this connection with Gentiles. And so this synagogue has been the strategic place to spread the gospel because from here, it can go out in different directions, reaching as many people as possible. And Paul did it th- through the work of the Holy Spirit and also through the Word of God. That's where it says he made his case. And that's where people were persuaded from. And that's where people responded because of what was in the word of God. So I asked the question, do we know our Bibles? Christians, people who who claim to follow Christ, who are called to be missionaries, do we know our Bibles? Could we... Could we, in our conversations with people, open the Word of God and be able to answer questions? I'm not saying, I'm not calling for like perfection. I'm not calling for scholars. But do we at least know where to go? Do we, do we understand the Word? I want to I challenge you. If, if the answer is no, and I'm, there are some planes where I'm like, yeah, no, I don't know how to answer that question. I want to encourage you to, to, to really deepen, to deepen your study of the Word of God. Spend quality time in the Word of God. Don't just make it something to check off a list and go, that was my devotion time. Like, don't, it's, don't make it a chore, but, but dig into it. We, this is a gift that we, we get the privilege of reading God's Word. And we, we deal with people on a daily basis who don't know it, who don't know the gospel, can we show it to them? Can we do it from the Bible? So I encourage you, pick up a Bible study tool, a commentary, something. Talk to one of the pastors. We can point you in a direction. 
Are you involved in a community group? One of the big aspects of community group is digging deeper into the Word of God so we can grow together in our relationship with, with, with Christ and in our knowledge and understanding of the Word of God, not just for information, but for transformation. Are you involved in a community group? If not, I want to encourage you to do that. That we might understand more. That we, like Paul, could just open the Word and go, this, this is how great, this is how awesome Jesus Christ is. Don't you want that good news? It's from the Scripture that we see just how much we need a Savior. And as people respond positively to the gospel, there's also some negative lashback. And it says, But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob and set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the other brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. So we see the Jewish leaders get pretty upset. You see people coming to faith, and they they don't get upset uh, in in the sense of we're we're upset because we 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 are seeing our our beliefs rocked a little bit. They're they're more. It says they're jealous. They're jealous of what's happening. They're they're jealous that people are are coming to Christ. Because they're, they're jealous that the gospel, the gospel is radically changing this world that they know. Where they had their power. Where they had the, their ways. We're seeing the gospel changing it. So in their jealousy, it says they round up the men of the rabble. Which probably looks something like this. That's from Frankenstein. So it's not the Thessalonians, in case you were wondering. Um, they didn't have fedoras, I'm sure. Um, but it looks something like that. Because what these men of the rabble are, are basically these, these individuals who are kind of lowly, and they'll form a mob for whatever reason. Like, if you want them to get angry and create a ruckus, the men of the rabble are the ones to go to. The King James Version calls these men lewd fellows of a baser sort. Yeah, that just sounds way better than men of the rabble. Lewd fellows of a base assault. And then, the New, <laughs> New Testament Greek scholar, A.T. Robinson, he just very eloquently calls them, as, as Rocky probably would also, bums. He calls them <laughs> bums. So, the men of the rabble are held in very high esteem. So, and these Jewish leaders, they know where to go. They want to see stuff get done. They want to see this city in an uproar. So they go to these, these sketchy dudes. They get everyone all riled up, right? And it says they go to the house of Jason. And so they're, they're fired up. They're like, we're going to get these guys. They're turning the world upside down. That sounded like George Costanza. Um, <laughs> we're going to get them, Jerry. And they go to Jason's house. And, you know, they're there. And they, they're knocking on the door. They're like, we're going to get them. Bring out Paul and Silas. We want them. And then it's, it's like they're all, they're fired up, they're ready to go, they're ready to, to, to kill these guys, or at least toss them in jail, and they're not there. They go to the house where they're staying, this guy Jason's housing them, and they're not there. Like, think, these guys were already so mad at what was happening because of the gospel, and now they finally have their, their sketchy mob and everything, and they get to the house, and they're not even there. How frustrated would you be? I mean, I would be like, are you kidding me? Are you? Ah. So what they do is they, they grab the next best thing. They're like, well, if they're not there, you guys are coming. 
So they grab Jason and some other, the other brothers and they bring them before the authorities and they lay out this accusation. He says, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. The men he's talking about are Paul and Silas. And then he points to Jason and he says, and Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. Now, I don't think that mob particularly really cared that much that they're proclaiming another king over Caesar. But that mob knew, if they were going before the authorities, these politarchs, that they would care if that charge was being brought up. So there's this kind of half-truth where, yes, Paul and Silas are declaring another king. That is Jesus. That is absolutely true. But it has, it's, it's not even in the same world as Caesar. Like, they're proclaiming the king of kings and lord of lords, Jesus Christ. Who, Caesar is nothing but a footstool. So it's like, yeah, they're proclaiming another king, but it's another king that Caesar himself eventually will bow down to. Jesus doesn't want Caesar's, Caesar's throne. What is, what is Rome compared to the entire universe, right? It's, so they bring about this charge, and, and they're talking about Jesus. They're talking, Paul and Silas are talking about a king, as Paul puts it in Philippians, that says, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Now that, is actually the message that the, the Jewish leaders are getting offended at. It has nothing to do with Caesar, but it has to do with the exaltation of Jesus Christ above all as the Savior, as the Messiah, as the King of Kings. They didn't want to see Jesus exalted. They didn't want to see the gospel go forth. Right in the very beginning of what they said is really where their problem was. It's that these men are turning the world upside down. That's the real gripe. The Caesar, the King Caesar thing, that, that's, a, that's a way to get them to have something done with it. These authorities, and we see in the text that the, the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things about them and uh, Caesar. But their problem was the world was being turned upside down by the gospel. And, and even that, the whole turning upside down thing, that's not entirely accurate. Because if you really think about it, this world's already upside down. This world is not right side up. This world was turned upside down with sin. In Genesis, God creates the perfect world. He creates it and he says it was good. But because of sin, we see a world fallen and wicked. Because of sin, we see uh, the whole reason Jesus needs to come in the first place to redeem and restore that which is broken. That is good news. That is a hope that Paul is proclaiming. And that hope is the only thing that has the power to really flip this world I'm still going to say upside down, but it's really right side up. In this life, there's a lot of pain. There's a lot of heartache. There's a lot of stuff that happens that we can't explain, and we're like, this just isn't right. People ripping each other off. Girls being dragged off into the sex trade industry. We see every spring the compassion videos on Compassion Sunday, of these children living in, you can call them homes, but they're nothing more than a few pieces of boards just put together in this third world village. That is not a world that is right side up. Maybe, maybe some of you have heard of the organization, The Invisible Children. This is, this is a, a, a collection of filmmakers who went over to Uganda, and they, they saw with their own eyes Havoc that was being wreaked by this uh, LRA, which stands for the Lord's Resistance Army. Led, it's a violent rebel group. It's led by this guy named Joseph Kony. And it started in Uganda. It's the longest running African conflict to this day. It spread into the Congo, into the Sudan, 
uh, to the Central Republic of Africa. Um, and what, what makes this group, it's not just like a military group, as if you know, that would be bad enough. But they don't just recruit adults. They kidnap children off soccer fields while they're playing. They kidnap these kids and put them in this army. Teach them just to kill. They're, these kids are being grabbed and put into a war they have no business being in. This is not a world that is right side up. When you see these videos and you see, they, they, they show day by day families just, their whole, everything they do is just migrating away from the army so their kids don't get stolen. This is a world that needs the gospel, that needs to be turned right side up. And that's what Paul is proclaiming. There is hope. There is hope. For, the, and for those who, who have put their faith and trust in Jesus, there is hope of eternal life and our true home dwelling with Jesus forever. There is that hope. Jesus will be seated on his throne. He'll be, he'll be, he is the true living king of kings. We will be living with him. The glory of God, it says in the new earth, is going to be so bright we have no need for a sun. And it's, it says, in this new home, we're told that he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. That is hope. I read that verse, and I go, oh, I can't wait. I can't wait, because there, there's an awful lot of crying and mourning and pain. I cannot wait for that day. We can hold on to that hope. We can hold on that this upside down world will be turned right side up again. But until that day comes, we're called to turn this world upside down with the gospel. One person at a time, one conversation at a time, as we're interacting with people, we need to be declaring and demonstrating the gospel. Because that's what is going to turn this world upside down. That's what turned my world upside down. I was running from God, chasing sin. But then, at a youth conference, I was shown the gospel, and I was like, I stink. Jesus is great. I need to come to him. Are we going to be a church that seeks to turn this world on its head. I pray that we are. I'm not saying we're not. But it's always good to be reminded. Yeah, we have a mission. Let's not forget that. We have a mission. And so upon this accusation, we saw the city authorities, they were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security... From Jason and the rest, they let them go. Now, we don't, we don't really know that much about Jason. We obviously know that he hosted them. But we see Jason play a very pivotal role in this segue from Thessalonica to get down to Berea. Jason and the other believers, they pay, they pay this cost in order to keep Paul and Silas safe. So they, it's not really bail. They're not bailing them out of anything, but they're basically they're paying money in order to say, We're, we'll get them out of here. We'll get them out of here safely. And the Life Application Bible Commentary describes Jason as one of the many unsung heroes who faithfully played their part to help spread the gospel. This is so true. If, if, if they don't stand in Paul and Silas's place and pay that money to keep them safe, we could safely assume that Paul and Silas get kidnapped and tossed into jail again. Now, we know God is bigger than all the circumstances, so he would have worked out, however, in his own will. But we see Jason faithfully standing there, taking the charges on him, paying from his own pocket and the other believers' pockets to make sure that Paul and Silas can continue safely to get out of Thessalonica. And, and what, what that really meant was they were paying money and they were saying they're going to go and they're not going to come back. 
That was their way of giving the assurance to the authorities. And that's why Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 2, But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly, yeah, the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. And that's what we see happening. This is that, that hindering where they had to flee the city. And we see them run to Berea. Before we move to Berea, I just want to recap. We've seen Paul in the synagogue point people to the gospel, showing the gospel is the focal point of the scriptures. And we see from the accusation that that same gospel is the only thing that has the power to turn it upside down. And what I want us to see now is the hunger for it. It says, the, the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So if Paul demonstrated to us in Thessalonica how we should understand and know the Bible and share and proclaim the gospel, the Bereans really show us a good example of an eagerness for it, an eagerness to take it in and to soak it up. And again, Luke gives two very specific words that I want to look at. And we're going to look at eagerness. We're going to look at the examining. These, are the, these, these two go hand in hand, and they, they work very well together. So we're going to look at first eagerness, then we'll look at examining. So these Bereans were, were eager. And this was important for the statement. It says that the Jews in Berea were more noble than those in Thessalonica. Why were they more noble? Not because of stature or anything like that, but they were more noble because of how they received the message that was being brought. They received it with eagerness. Eagerness for the word of God is huge. And it's, you know, it's not something we can just go, I'm going to be more eager. It just doesn't work that way. It's, it's something we need to, to pray for and to ask, like, God, give me an eagerness for your word. Give me an, an eagerness to hear your word. I think and what I see in, in America as a whole and, and specifically in our northeast region is eagerness is being replaced with laziness. There's not an eagerness to come and hear the word of God. There's not an eagerness to gather together and to worship together. There's a laziness. People, you see it all the time where people are like, well, I don't, I don't really want to do the whole church thing. Most of the services start too early, so I'd rather just sleep in. And this is the word of God. Are we, are we eager or are, are, we just, are we just settling for attendance at Bedside Baptist? Are we, are we going to kneel down and, and pray and worship at Pillow Presbyterian? Um, I got a million of them. Um, there is just this laziness that is rampant. And it, or, if, or if there's not laziness where people don't want to show up, there's also just this sense of obligation where it's like, well, I'm going to show up, but I'm just going to check it off my list. I'm going to come because it can't hurt. And I'm just going to sit and make it through and not care. And I, I, would be, I, I would be blatantly lying to you if I did not say those feelings creep up in me. Sometimes when the alarm goes off, I'm just like, oh, I have to move. And I don't want to move. But just because feelings like that creep up doesn't mean they aren't something that needs to be repented of. We have all kinds of feelings that, you know, if we based everything on feelings, holy cow, with this, whoo, you want to talk about upside down. I, I don't even know, the world would self-implode if we just lived on our feelings. 
We need to, to, to repent of our desires to just be, to just, like the Word of God is okay. Or gathering together is just okay. We need to repent of that and, and ask for an eagerness to hear from the Word. Where are you at this morning? The Bereans were eager. It says they were eager to hear what Paul had to say. They were eager to hear the message being proclaimed. They were taking it in. They were soaking it up. Eagerness is huge. But not eagerness alone. We, we can just be eager, but blind eagerness, well, that's not too great either. I'm reminded of a story that came this past December from Europe. This guy named Peter Clatworthy. He thought he had paid 450 euros for an Xbox One console on eBay, but actually received a picture of an Xbox One. The 19-year-old student from Bilboro had saved up in order to buy this limited edition day one version of the console as a surprise Christmas present for his four-year-old son. And despite the listing stating that it was a photo of the Xbox One, he bought it because he expected to receive the console as it was listed because it was in the video games section. He even said it stated photo, but I was in two minds. I looked at the description, and it was in the right category, so it made me think it was genuine. He was eager to get that Xbox One, but he did not examine what the description said closely. The prosperity gospel is something that we are eager to receive because it sounds good. We hear these false teachers and we're like, that sounds good, but upon further examination, we find there is no hope in that. We find it is not true. And too many people just blindly are like, yes, I want a brand new car. So I'm going to follow Jesus because he's going to give me the best car ever. That's just not how it works. Trust me, I drive a 99 Cavalier. <laughs> it's not how it works. God is the God who provides. He gets me here. That's the better work. So we need to have a hunger for the gospel. We need to have a hunger for the correct gospel. We need to take what we're hearing and we need to, as the Bereans do, examine, examine it. Look at it closely. It says they took in. We need to be soakers. We need to be sponges. Let's soak it up. But then there needs to be this point of examination. We need to look at what, what we've heard and go back to the word which we've established as the authority and look at what that says. So they hear this message from Paul, which I'm going to go ahead and assume it wasn't heretical because it's Paul and he wrote most of the New Testament. They take what he's saying. They're like, this sounds good. This sounds really good, but let us check our facts. And again, like I just said, they're not checking their facts based on their traditions and their feelings and their doctrines that they've always just held to. They're checking the scriptures. We need to, we need to be checking those we read, those we listen to. Like, I'm not perfect up here. So like, don't just say, well, Ricky said it, so it's got to be true. That's not true. I've preached a a sermon before three different times and I've changed things in the sermon many times. Why? Because upon further examination of my own study, I was like, no, that was not, that was not quite there. Really hope God worked through that one when I preached it. Um, we'll do better this time. Preachers aren't perfect. No matter how great they are to listen to and no matter how spot on they are most of the time, upon further examination, we'll find there are some things that maybe aren't true that just need to be like, well, wait a minute. The Bible says this. Check and examine the things you are putting into your mind, into your hearts. As you listen and as you read, there are Christian authors on the New York Times bestseller list who don't resemble the gospel in the least in their writing. 
So just because they say they're Christian doesn't mean they're preaching a true gospel. We need to be discerning of what we take in. I'm a, I'm a youth, my major in college was youth ministry, and there's a, a guy named Walt Mueller. Uh, he's kind of like a youth ministry guru, I guess. And he has this website that's called cpyu.org, which stands for the Center of Parent and Youth Understanding. And he has a bunch of resources on the website. But one of the things he has on there is what's called these 3D media reviews. He's not reviewing the quality of 3D movies, um, which, which is good because I think you get bashed because they're disappointing many times. But what he's doing is he's using 3Ds to help along the critical thinking process. And I think this is, is something that, that's been helpful for me and I hope would be helpful for you. So the first, the first D in these three Ds is discover. And this, this is the phase of critical thinking where we, like the Bereans, we soak it in. We, we discover what it is we're listening to or reading or watching Whatever it is, this is the point of discovery where we're just like, we're making contact with it and we're, we're seeing it. And that's what Paul's message is to the Bereans. The Bereans are eager to discover this. And then there's this third D, discern. This is the stage where we take what we've discovered and now we kind of sift it through a biblical worldview and we see, well, is this, does this line up? Some things will be uh, absolutely and some things will be not so much. But we need to do it. We need to look and say, does this line up with what the Bible teaches? Whatever it is. This, this could cover a million different, different things. And this is what the Bereans do. There's the discovery. They, they examine it through the scriptures. They discern. And then the last D, decide. After we do the first two Ds, we then are left with this decision. After seeing it, after sifting it through the Bible, what do I do with it? What do I do with it? Am I going to reject it, saying, no, this is not right? Am I going to accept it and go, it's okay? And then, I'm I'm not going to lie to you, sometimes there's like, oh, it's right in the middle. I don't know what to do with it. It happens, but the process we need to go through. We need to know does this line up with the Word of God? And we see the Bereans do this as well. Because after they've examined, they respond. And it says, but when the... <clears throat> it says, uh, they responded somewhere. They did, I promise. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing, as well as men. And I don't have that in there. There was a response. So upon this, they received it eagerly, they examined it thoroughly, and they respond. Coming to Jesus. Let us be a people that are marked by a hunger for the Word of God. A hunger to soak it in. But also let us not be blind, but let us be examiners of the Word of God. Take it in and examine it. And our story concludes with the Jews from Thessalonica. They learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also. And they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea. But Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who were, and those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. And we'll, we'll look at Paul's time in Athens next week. So I want to I wrap this up. We've seen the centrality of the gospel in all of Scripture. We've seen its ability to turn the world upside down. And we've seen the hunger that that we should have for the gospel. And when we look at these things, we, we can see how they, they perfectly fit together. I went through them in the order I did because that's the way the text goes. 
But when you, when you look at them in this order, it makes so much sense to have this hunger. And when, you, when you're hungry, you know, you, you feed, right? You're going to satisfy that hunger. So there's this hunger, this examining. After that hunger, you, you, we have the Bereans here. Then we follow those Bereans into this, what Paul showed us in the first part with the proclaiming and showing Jesus. And then we see this turning the world upside down. I mean, this is, and from there, we see the cycle start again. This is what it's all about. This is, I mean, you don't, you don't usually eat a whole bunch and then discover, I was hungry for that. Usually, you, you know pretty well in advance that you were hungry. Um, so, so you eat. So we have the hunger and the eating. Then we have the proclaiming. These days, proclaiming comes in the form of taking a picture of your food and posting it. That's what proclaiming is. Like, oh, this burger's good. Nice. See that world? I'm eating something terrible for me and you can't have it. That's not how the gospel is. We can proclaim it and people can have it. We need to be hungry, eat it, see that it is indeed good, and proclaim that good news. When we eat something good, we don't normally just go, well, that was good. Okay, on my way. We usually tell people about it. Like, I went to this place and it was awesome. The gospel needs to be like that. That we can point others to Jesus and see this world turned upside down. Are you feeding yourself on his word? Are you demonstrating and declaring the gospel to the people around you? Are you living on mission as we're called to live on mission? Maybe you're here this morning, you've never, you don't really understand what I'm talking about when, I, when I'm talking about Jesus. I want to tell you this morning, he sacrificed himself for you so that you didn't have to live in a hopeless, upside-down world, but so that you could be turned upside-down yourself and see things right-side-up as they're supposed to be, as Jesus, glorious I want to invite you this morning to, to, come, to come to Jesus. And, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. And know that there is hope. This is not a hopeless world. But in Jesus, in his, in his work, there is hope of this broken world restored. Oh, that we would see the splendor of the King of Kings this morning. And that we would see how great and how glorious Jesus Christ is. Let's bow our heads together. Father, we are grateful for Jesus and what he's done in our hearts. And Lord, I pray that this morning, as we heard from your word, that we would respond to it that we would see the greatness that you are and that our world would just be rocked. This place would be turned upside down. Let us get out of the way. Let us put you in the forefront of our lives that we could live for you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.